Hello friends and welcome to my Unorthodoxy podcast and to the last part in this series on understanding creativity. Here I want to explore the nature of analogy as that natural way of structuring consciousness that also gives rise to creativity. I'll first offer a very brief discussion of analogy itself before turning my attention and so your attention too to the way that this may help us to think about coming up with creative ideas. Typically, analogy refers to a comparison between one thing and another. So, for example, you might be busy with some activity and someone might come up to you and say, that's as useful as rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Chances are tremendously good that you're not literally rearranging chairs on the Titanic, but something about what you're doing is making that person who has just said this very offensive thing to you, think that what you're doing is, in fact, a futile activity. We know analogies most commonly through similes and metaphors, but it would be a mistake to think that analogy is just about obvious comparisons between one thing and another. Analogy is at the heart of all thinking. It is, therefore, no surprise that it'll be at the heart of all creative thinking, too. I see creative thinking as an extension of or particular application of this natural capacity for analogy. Even your ability to piece together what I'm saying right now relies on your ability to think analogically. You are at this very moment, although not fully aware of it, filtering every single tiny detail of what I'm saying through a complex system of comparisons. You are noticing similarities between what I'm saying and what you already know, and differences between what I'm saying and what you already know. You are even filtering the subtle repetitions and variations in the tone of my voice. Your mind is also attuned, with various degrees of success, to your own embodied being, how you feel. You may notice, for example, that you are right now feeling about the same as you were a moment ago, or maybe you are more alert than you were a moment ago, or... Maybe you are now slightly more tired than you were a moment ago. There is similarity, but also difference. Well, this mapping of similarity and difference, this analogical cognition is built into all cognition. Cognition itself is analogical. I spoke in the previous episode about Chekhov's gun. Well, the analogical structure of cognition offers us a further clue into this. The so-called gun on the wall that Chekhov refers to set up a particular anticipation. Anticipation is built on the idea of similarity. We imagine, for example, that the gun ought to have a particular meaning. It needs to, in Chekhov's words, go off. Why? Because that's what guns do. Amazingly, the object is read as embodying an objective. It has, so to speak, an aim. It is by no means a neutral thing, especially when we recognize that it was designed for a particular purpose. This is true for how we look at the world. Everything has a point outside of itself. Now, what if someone in the story does use the gun on the wall, but instead of firing it, stands up on a chair, takes the gun off the wall, pulls the trigger, and lights a cigarette with it? Surprise! Turns out, in this imaginary story that I've just made up, that the gun is not a gun after all, but a lighter that just looks like a gun. Well, 
in this scenario, the idea of a gun as a lighter can only make sense according to analogy. If you know what a gun is and you know what a lighter is, you will be able to interpret this strange moment in the play that you're watching as meaningful. The audience's anticipation was wrong, but the outcome is still comprehensible on the basis of analogy. Analogy tells us this is like that, but this is not that. Oddly enough, in everyday life, analogy as a cognitive process aims for expedience more than it aims for accuracy. Have you ever had a slip of the tongue, as in that Freudian joke where you said one thing when you really meant your mother? Freud called slips of the tongue parapraxies, meaning an error in speech, memory, or sometimes physical action that occurs due to what Freud speculated was the interference of an unconscious subdued wish or internal train of thought. I think Freud was wrong about this, at least in a certain sense. A slip of the tongue is more likely a signal of our analogical thought processes, even if, yes, those processes of thought are mostly unconscious. I think they are the result of the cognitive unconscious rather than, say, the psychoanalytic unconscious. You'll notice that in a slip of the tongue, typically speaking at least, the word said is often related in one way or another to the word that was meant. Sometimes the relationship is merely one of it sounding similar to the word that was actually meant. Again then, analogy as a cognitive process aims for expedience more than it aims for accuracy. The aim is generally to help us to think as quickly as possible rather than slowly and carefully. Our brains are often profoundly lazy, mostly because we have a finite amount of mental energy. The trouble with this is one I've already touched on, where we resort to cliches. By now though, I hope you'll see why cliches are a problem. Too much similarity. In this, our analogical thought process sides with the overly familiar there is no room for interesting decision-making or for seeing the world in a fresh way. Here's an example. In political discussions, at some point, the vilified political opponent is likely to be compared to Hitler. Now, perhaps this could be a fruitful metaphor. Remember, a metaphor is just a type of analogy. The trouble is, often, at least in recent history, that vilified politician in question I don't need to name one simply because any number of vilified politicians may come to mind, that vilified politician, while having many vices, is very likely to be very little like Hitler in more ways than we can even count. The analogy is, more often than not, a bad one. It's a shortcut to thinking, not actual thinking. It's a substitute for thinking. But... And this is important. The person doing the vilifying is not going to notice. The analogy has served its purpose. That guy over there is evil and that's all you really need to know. It's not very clear, but this sort of thinking is fairly commonplace. What a creative analogy does is set up a tension between the familiar and the unfamiliar such that there is just enough of both to be both familiar and stimulating. It's not, as in my example here, about stopping thought but starting it. A good analogy will raise questions. It may even provide an answer or two. I'm going to use a musical example here since even in music the analogical structure of cognition is doing its thing. 
Listen for a moment to this little melodic idea in the Russian composer Sergei Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, Opus 43. It is a well-known theme. Even if you're not into Russian romantic music, you are likely to have heard it. The original theme was written by the composer Paganini for violin, and Rachmaninoff decided to take that theme and build a composition out of it, along the lines of a theme and variations. The whole thing is worth listening to. And as you listen to it, you will hear that theme come back. Something about it will be familiar. But the genius of Rachmaninoff involved taking it and doing something fresh again and again and again. It is, I think, magnificent, and I hope you appreciate that as you listened to what I just played you, your incredible mind was able to notice the theme in the variation and the variation in the theme. Analogy, as I hope you understand by now, is not just verbal, but in the very structure of how we understand and interpret everything. But now, with that in mind, let's listen to the 18th variation on the theme, the Pinario variation. Most people listen to this and they would think that Rachmaninoff must be smoking his socks if he thinks that this is a variation on a theme. It doesn't sound like a variation but a totally different melody. It's slower and more majestic and the entire vibe is different. It turns out, of course, that Rachmaninoff knew what he was doing. He took those four notes in the original Paganini theme. Here they are, I'm going to play them for you. Then, he turned those notes upside down. Here's how that sounds. And then, he changed the key from a minor to a major key. And here's how that sounds. And then, he slowed it down. And that's just one example out of what is a very complex and brilliant piece of music. Analogy is the core of cognition. This is simple enough to point out, but I hope you'll notice that this is by no means to reduce cognition to a simplistic thing. Astonishing processing power is needed to interpret all themes and variations, all similarities and differences, all moments of recognition and moments of revelation. 
In that last sentence, I used several analogies. Themes, similarities, and moments of recognition were all analogies of each other, and variations, differences, and moments of revelation were analogies for each other. What creativity does, though, is it tries to introduce the unfamiliar, a fresh way of interpreting the familiar. Creativity, as I've said, reframes the familiar in a meaningful way. So what we are trying to do in pursuit of interesting decisions and interesting solutions to problems is we are looking for a way to reframe the familiar in a meaningful way. As far as communication goes, you might turn to so-called rhetorical devices like metaphor or personification and metonymy and so on. These are all types of artful deviation. In other words, these are types of analogy. Think, for example, of the idea of money as an analogy. Money is an analogy for the value of an object minus the object. Think, too, of how this podcast functions as an analogy for me, the person presenting it. It is, mind you, just an analogy. It is a very small fraction of my own thinking, distilled and totally separate from me, converted into bits, bytes and megabytes, and interpreted through digital means before bouncing onto your eardrums. Analogies are positively everywhere. In fact, you could even argue that nothing is literal. Not even literal things are literal. Rather, they are analogies that aim at a specific degree of precision. Now, what does this mean for coming up with new ideas? Well, very briefly, it means that all ideas hinge on the given, what we already know and have access to. Then, they have something to do with repeating the given, transforming the given, and combining the given with other givens. Coming up with creative ideas means repeating, transforming, and or combining. What is repeated, transformed, or combined? Well, the variations can be endless, but it is the job of the creative to push themselves to create repetitions, transformations, and combinations that resonate with the audience in terms of fulfilling and extending their expectations along the lines of Chekhov's gun. Whether you are generating a story or an illustration or an artwork or a new music composition or a poem or any other creative output, the aim is to work with the given but to somehow renew it, to breathe new life into it. Often creativity means looking at what is there and simply asking, what if? It means generating possibilities around the given. Often this means working somewhat dialectically, by that I mean working simply away from the given towards the potentials around the given. As I work towards concluding all of this, let me point out that what all of this suggests is that we now have a kind of rubric through which we can understand how good an idea is. This is one way to check if we're on the right track after generating a new idea. None of what I'm about to describe should be brand new because it echoes what I've already discussed but I think it is worth putting it all together. First, we have the insight. This is the epiphany that you're working with and from. If the final creative output is not in keeping with the original insight that you want to communicate, you know that something went wrong along the way. Then, second is the audience. The audience is, in a way, the formal cause of all creativity. 
your creative work is for the audience rather than just for you. So your idea or your concept is just not successful if your intended audience has no way to interpret it. To get this right, you need to be attuned to third, what the audience will find acceptably familiar and fourth, what the audience would find refreshingly unfamiliar. As I've said, a tension between the familiar and the unfamiliar is vital in whatever kind of analogy you come up with. Then there is a fifth element, namely drama. Drama should play a role in all of the other elements, in fact. Drama is where you set up tensions in your idea that allow room for the audience to set up meaningful anticipations and meaningful spaces for surprise. In other words, by drama I mean that when you put everything together, there is room for the audience to, in some or another way, participate in the realization of that foundational insight and perhaps a few other insights along the way. So there you go, five elements. First, insight. Second, the audience. Third, the familiar. Fourth, the unfamiliar. And finally, fifth, the drama. What these elements of a good idea suggest is that a fundamental component of creativity is not just generating any idea, but learning how to articulate it well in a way that resonates with the audience. This we need to learn by being discerning about what is good and bad. And for that, well, it helps to pay attention to the brilliant work of others and to figure out how they did it. Actually, I hope that what I've presented here to you will help you to do exactly that. <laughs>